0: It's the middle of a Cape Town summer. It's a Friday night. It's hot and it's dry. My kids are asleep and so everything is happening at a whisper and in semi-darkness. Including the least graceful part of every evening. And that involves me carrying a 30-litre bucket of water up a flight of stairs. And not just any water, it's grey water, harvested from the nasty end of my washing machine. Important context here is that we are living in a drought. A pretty bad one. And living in a drought makes you start running some numbers you wouldn't normally run. For example, my washing machine's average cycle spits out around 50 or 60 litres of grey water. And 50 or 60 litres of grey water comes in at around 5 or maybe 6 toilet flushes. Now what you lose in this equation is that my washing machine is on the ground floor and the toilets are on the first floor. But that's just a fun bonus for yours truly. Now this whole ritual of me carrying an oversized bucket of grey water up the stairs is super awkward. Mostly because I'm a delicate office worker, and a little bit because I'm already a couple of whiskies into the weekend. And as I lurch around in the dark, like a toddler carrying a kettlebell, I think to myself, come on, there has got to be an easier way. Welcome to ESG Now. I'm your host for this episode, Bentley Kaplan. Today's show is part of a series of podcasts we are putting out to break down our flagship paper of the year, the 2020 ESG trends to watch. The paper is a labor of love. This year's version was authored by our head of ESG research herself, Linda Ealing-Lee, and regular guests on this show, Megan Eastman and Rick Marshall. And behind each successful authorship team is an army of enthusiastic analysts, hunting down data, running analyses, and pretending to be on their year-end vacations. And all this work paid off. The paper is awesome, and even better, it's freely available on our website msei.com. So go, give it a read, after this of course, and just let the cutting edge of ESG wash over you. Now in this episode we are going into the trend revaluing real estate, investing in the eye of the hurricane, because, quote, just as real estate investors and managers begin to grapple with what climate change might do to their assets physically, Now, they may also have to contend with accelerating regulations. Vast portions of the global property stock are in cities and regions marching towards zero carbon building standards. So, strap in. As we work through this trend, we'll learn a little bit about property valuations, why green buildings have really started taking off, and why property investors are starting to take long, hard looks at non-green or brown buildings. And we'll also see why, despite changes in climate and building regulations, one of the oldest adages of property still holds true. First, let's lay out the basics. The idea of green buildings is great. They use less electricity, they're more water efficient, and ultimately they also reduce our carbon emissions compared to non-green or brown buildings. And because buildings are everywhere with a massive combined footprint, greening them offers a very appealing lever to slow the approach of climate change. But how the world's buildings actually get greened is where things get a little complicated. And I learned that the hard way. See, I live in a small duplex in Cape Town. And Cape Town has been unwittingly running two artificial experiments. Experiment 1 happened in 2018. During one of the worst droughts in recent decades, the city of Cape Town ramped up daily water restrictions to 50 liters per person. They also introduced the concept of day zero. Day zero was basically a scenario in which the piped water supply to more than three and a half million people would effectively be cut off. The army would move in and residents would have to collect their water rations by hand, or you know, bucket. Thanks to an early and sustained rainy season, we never got to day zero but our water supply continues to remain just a little bit precarious. And to sweeten the deal, in late 2019, we started on experiment two. And in this artificial experiment, our national power utility, ESCOM, reintroduced load shedding, as years of mismanagement and corruption took its toll on ESCOM's capacity. For those not au fait with the lingo, load shedding basically means strategically cutting off power for a couple of hours a day, or more. There are different stages, there's an app, it's super fun. So, my little duplex was hit by a double whammy of power cuts and water shortages. And when that happens, as my wife Tully can testify, you get a pretty quick appreciation for the term resilience and how much work it actually takes to make a building green.
1: All of our washing machine water we now catch in a bucket, which then takes hours to sterilize so that it doesn't smell horrendous. We have little buckets under each tap in every every bathroom and kitchen to catch any drop of water that comes out of any tap
0: ice cream tubs
1: ice cream tubs but they're little buckets we stand in a a bucket when we're in the shower we catch the bath water from the kids baths yeah it's just it's not a easy way to live and you i think you've got to be fairly committed to save water yeah, it is, it is a wonderful feeling when you really need to flush your toilet and the system's empty and then you realize that the only water that you're willing to use to flush your toilet is down a flight of stairs past two children under three years of age and down a chasm
0: of... Okay, okay, so you get the picture. Dragging around smelly buckets of grey water might not be your idea of fun either. But we're not idiots. Well, at least my wife is no idiot. In the reacher-settler dynamic, I am very much the reacher. So then if we're not idiots, why are we doing the back-breaking work of dragging buckets of water around our flat when there are like, you know, water pumps?
1: So part of the limitation of renting is that you're not willing to invest in your property or in the property in the same way as you would if it was yours. Um, So you're in a bit of a predicament where you, you know how you can improve the water efficiency of the house, but you're just not willing to do it because it's not your house. I definitely think that if we moved from here, we'd be looking for quite different things. We'd be looking for either full investment from the owners in some water-saving devices, rainwater-catching things, greywater, plumbing systems, anything like that. Also energy, power, so it doesn't necessarily need to be solar, but just some kind of commitment from the owners that they're willing to invest in the kind of things that we need to invest in, given the resource limitations we have.
0: Yeah, you see Tully and I are millennials and like a lot of millennials, we don't actually own the house we live in. And as temporary residents, we think pretty carefully about how much we want to put into our rented home. Personally, I don't want to leave behind so much as a mid-range shower fitting if we end up moving one day. And Cape Town has a pretty cutthroat residential property market. A lot of people want to live in Cape Town and owners are relying on that high demand to quash any requests for upgrades like grey water pumps or solar power. And it turns out that the little interplay between a property owner and a renter in a teensy-weensy duplex is getting played out across the global property market. You know, in huge multi-billion dollar commercial properties. The kinds of properties that investors are looking at. So then I wanted to understand how things like energy efficiency or water efficiency are affecting the value of big shiny commercial properties. The problem is, I don't know the first thing about property value, except like, maybe that thing. What what do they say? Location, location, location. Like, maybe an old fire station on the fringes of a gentrifying neighbourhood is a pretty sweet spot to put in a coffee roastery, or like a craft gin bar. But that's about the end of my knowledge about real estate. Lucky for me, I've got Phil Bartram. Phil is my property guy, or in all honesty, he's, he's MSCI's property guy. Phil is the driving force behind our real estate business here in South Africa. He sits just a few desks away from me in Cape Town and he's pretty streetwise about the world of property. And one of my favorite things about Phil is that he's a straight talker. So I asked him about property valuations and he gave it to me straight.
2: Okay, so starting off, I'm not a valuer. Secondly, different countries may have different ways of working out the value of a property. But in general, the secret is to recognize that when you're buying commercial property or valuing commercial property, you don't value it on your bricks and mortar in your land like you would your property, your home property. In general, when you've got income-producing property, which is what people tend to invest in, that is valued actually on the income stream. So it's a combination, you're actually buying the leases so the tenants and their leases and you're buying how much you get for those leases and once you've taken your costs off and then you'll do it as a multiple so you'd say I'll pay six times that or nine times that as an example
0: okay so basically when it comes to a property's value a commercial one like an office building or a shopping mall it's not about the building it's actually about the income you can earn by renting or leasing space in the building so I had full with another question straight from the playbook of real estate for dummies What makes a property's value change? Mostly because a property feels very different to an asset like company shares or ETFs, which can be moved around. I mean, once you've laid your foundation for a property, you're kind of stuck, but the renters can move and how much they're paying for that space can change. Right?
2: Anything that impacts on that income stream is going to seriously impact the value of that building either up or down. The best example to give would be vacancies or occupancy rates. You may well have demographic or economic trends to a specific area. So if you have a shopping center and that area goes down, it's really rough. The tenants that are prepared to go into that shopping center are not gonna pay you as much as they were for the same amount of space a really good shopping center, a really good area, and therefore your income drops. Another example is if you don't maintain that property, so you don't look after a property, you don't put enough capital expenditure into that property, eventually the quality of that asset will drop, it'll be recognized by the market,
0: and the market is prepared to pay a higher price for a good quality asset over a bad quality asset. And Phil's last point there really hit home, because a little maintenance on our rented duplex would be pretty sweet. I mean, a rotating driveway would be amazing, but we'd settle for a couple of upgrades to our water system or even just a timer for our hot water geezer. Either of those would just help take the edge off when our local water supply starts tailing off or when Eskom cuts the power again. And sure, we'd probably be okay with paying a little more rent for that peace of mind. Well, those kinds of green upgrades, it turns out they've been pretty sweet for the commercial property market in South Africa as well.
2: We're really lucky with green buildings in the property space because it's the one place where doing the right thing financially converges with doing the right thing environmentally. And it's very simple, it gets back to the first point around valuations. If you're able to enhance or improve the sustainability of the profit, that building or the net income of that building, you're able to derive a better value for that building than if you didn't do it. We've had examples in South Africa specifically, we've had both electricity shortages and water shortages and massive inflation in both. So the owners of those buildings have been incentivized to improve those efficiencies. So putting in photovoltaic cells on your roof, putting in huge water efficiency measures in order to reduce your water consumption and by implication the cost of that water has been a big driver of of net income savings in, in the South African market over the last few years.
0: Okay, so green buildings seem to be giving South African property owners a bit of an edge. As water levels dropped and power became more unpredictable, renting space in these buildings was actually an advantage for tenants. And in South Africa, having a building that's green can still be a differentiator for a property owner. Think of it as like the early days of the iPhone, when they were more like trendy accessories then irreplaceable productivity-slash-connectivity-slash-Instagrammy-enablers. But just like the iPhone took off to become something that even your tech-phobic grandma was using, so did green buildings. Not in South Africa yet, but certainly in other markets around the world. And in those markets, green buildings have gone from being nice-to-haves to have-to-haves. And it's when green buildings start becoming ubiquitous, that we start seeing where this ESG trend on brown building discounts could be headed for the rest of the world. And one of these canaries in the global real estate mine is Australia, where Morgan Ellis, one of our ESG rock stars in Sydney, has a pretty sweet setup that he just couldn't wait to tell me about.
3: I probably have one of the best commutes in the world. I catch a ferry across the Sydney Harbour. So I go past the Opera, Sydney Opera House, right under the Harbour Bridge, um, and then walk through Circular Quay to get to the office. So it takes me about 20 minutes to get from my home, which I'm, I'm renting a two bedroom flat in a suburb called Cremorne Point. And I live there with my wife, um, two kids, and a gigantic Labrador that
0: acts like a cat. And Morgan had even more to brag about because MSCI Sydney office is in a building with a pretty swanky green rating. And as Morgan put it, for an office worker, a green building is actually about much more than just saving electricity and water.
3: For a tenant, the benefit of a green building and leasing a green building space is that the utility costs will be lower, the tenancy will be more enjoyable and healthier to occupy as the building services that are pushing around air, there'll tend to be more outside air that comes in. So there's more fresh air that's not being recirculated through the building. There's more control over the lighting and the air conditioning system. So you're going to have, on average, a higher level of productivity. You'll get better views to the outside, so more natural light, which everyone always enjoys. um, And it'll just be more comfortable to occupy the space in general. So green buildings, uh, in Australia in particular, we've got quite a strong green building industry. We've had a green building council since about 2008. And we have a couple of pieces of legislation around office buildings in particular that mean almost every building that is sold or leased over a certain square footage has to have what's called a neighbour's energy rating um, as part of the advertising in the sale and leasing of that building. So green building ratings per se are very common In Australia, particularly in the central business districts and the the capital
0: cities. Okay, okay, so green buildings in Australia are basically just part of the norm. Nobody is getting any ticker tape parades for just putting in energy efficient light bulbs. But there was something I still wasn't all that clear on. Buildings, especially those smack bang in the middle of a city, are these colossal immovable things and they hang around for decades. Some of them are already decades old, right? And for those big old buildings, should you even be aiming to green them? Like, as the property owner, what do you do with something that was built 20 years ago or 30 years ago, when Neighbours wasn't a green building rating, but just something to watch on telly?
3: The real estate sector in general contributes 40% of the world's emissions, including the construction industries. And existing buildings make up 98, 99% of all building stock in any given city. So existing buildings definitely have a huge part to play in moving towards a low carbon economy. So in Sydney in particular, and in New South Wales, which is the state I live in and the state that Sydney is in, um, there are government incentives um, that are either subsidies or tax credits, it can be favourable loan the loan terms to increase the energy efficiency performance of a building. So you'll get money to retrofit the building services, install LED lights, uh, upgrade the lift systems and things like that. So if they do nothing over time, their energy performance will degrade compared to the market and they'll become less desirable over time.
0: And right there is where the rubber of this ESG trend starts hitting the road. As Morgan lays it out, having an old building isn't an excuse for not being green. And then he outlines some of the early shapes of the brown discount or basically how the value of non-green buildings is starting to get squeezed by regulation and policy.
3: Some companies and government agencies have a minimum requirement for a green building performance. So the Australian government, for example, won't tenant buildings that don't have a neighbor's energy, four and a half star rating. If you don't have that level of performance, you are missing out on this huge tenancy base and there are a couple of other government agencies around the world in canada and the united kingdom that have these requirements on the new buildings that they tenant or new buildings that they build where if you don't reach this level of performance they won't consider your building which is a lot to miss out on for a nice long-term government tenant that is pretty much going to pay on time and do everything that they're supposed to you miss out on that so it's getting to be a mix of green buildings are still selling point but also being a non-green building or a brownish building or brown new building is starting to be a deterrent for people who are leasing and people
0: who are buying. Okay, so let's take stock. All of this feels very new for real estate. But despite the growing piles of building code requirements, regulations, tax incentives and brown discounts, there's one thing that has remained a constant throughout. Location, location, location. Where your building is, is still a big deal. It was a big deal in the late 1980s if you were invested in property and that property was in Japan. More recently, it was a big deal if you had a house in Butte County during California's 2018 wildfires. Or if you had one in the United Kingdom in Yorkshire as recently as February this year, when the region was hit with unprecedented storms and flooding. But we reckon the next location that will matter for real estate will be about where green building regulations are becoming the most ambitious, and especially how those regulations will drive down the value of brown buildings. And it's not necessarily going to be about which country your building is in, but right down to the city, because building regulations are heavily influenced by local, not national regulators. So you can look at it this way, taken straight from the Trends paper, quote, 19 cities globally have committed to achieve net zero carbon emissions in new buildings by 2030, and for all existing buildings by 2050. Now that represents about 130 million residents and roughly one third of the total capital value of MSCI's Global Annual Property Index, which I am told by those in the know is a lot. And what makes this wave of green building regulations more intriguing is that it's playing catch up with something that property owners are increasingly familiar with, the physical impacts of climate change. Whereas up till now, property valuers were maybe pricing in the costs associated with flooding or hurricanes, now they may need to start layering a brown discount over all of that. In our ESG trends paper, we actually compared how different cities are staring down severe climate impacts like flooding or stiff green building regulations. And what we found was that sometimes it's both. If you have a property in a city like LA or San Francisco or New York, not only are there ambitious emission reduction goals for buildings, so in other words, green regulations, But those very same buildings have high levels of physical climate risk. The old double whammy. And sure, this might all feel like it's happening really fast, or maybe coming out of nowhere. But it's not hard to see why. It's because the expectations of those working in, or living in, or even investing in property, is changing. For Morgan, the change is in how he sees a different workplace for his kids. A much better one than he started out with.
3: I definitely reckon in terms of even their trips, their, you know, the commute will, who knows how, what a commute will be like, whether or not they'll even be able or, you know, whether they'll even have to drive their own cars. Who, who knows what the office will be like in 10, 15, 20 years with the amount of telecommuting that is available. It means they might not even be there. It would be pretty exciting to see what, what they end up experiencing in their professional life. My first job was in an old, old office in an industrial complex. There was just an absolute dump.
0: And beyond office spaces, the way we live is changing dramatically. For my kids, well, they're pretty freshly minted. For them, the radically different shape of their daily lives could mean a totally different way of looking at the world.
1: Yeah, it's interesting to think about how different our kids will be to us. The reality that they're growing up in, what was quite a shift for us to achieve in terms of changing our water behaviour and our electricity behaviour. The kids are just, this is just their normal, so maybe they're dirtier than many kids, but they know that they only bath every three days or so. Like when, you, when you're really dirty, that's when you bath. You don't need to bath every day. It doesn't need to be part of your bedtime routine. And maybe our kids are too little that they haven't really questioned it. But at the same time, you grow up in that way. And so that just becomes part of the, of the way you live your life. I imagine that our children will expect a lot more from uh, landowners, property owners, municipalities, government, because this will be their normal
0: And the sum total of all of this for property investors? As brown discounts start to grow, what does the second wave in the war against climate change even look like? Well truthfully, we don't know for sure. Some of it is going to be about exploring new data sets. But much more it's going to be about understanding that data and using it in a meaningful way. But at the heart of it, it will always be about three things. Location, location, location. And that is our show. Remember, if you want to take a deeper look into this data, swing by our website, msei.com, where you can download the ESG Trends to Watch paper, totally free, even if you're not one of our clients, and of course, totally awesome. And if you are a client, my dude Morgan Ellis has a superb paper, Sustainable Real Estate Investment, Understanding Climate Transition Risks, where he rolls up his sleeves and gets into the real nuts and bolts of brown discounts. I highly recommend it. And finally, I had a lot of help putting this together. A huge thanks to my wife Tully and my colleagues Phil and Morgan for sharing their thoughts on this trend. Kudos to Mike and Rick and Andrew for all their wicked feedback and a very sincere thanks to you for listening.
4: MSCI ESG Research podcast is provided by MSCI Inc.'s subsidiary, MSCI ESG Research LLC, a registered investment advisor under the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. And this recording and data mentioned herein has not been submitted to or received approval from the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any other regulatory body. The analysis discussed should not be taken as an indication or guarantee of any future performance, analysis, forecast, or prediction. The information contained in this recording is not for reproduction in whole or in part without prior written permission from MSCI ESG research. None of the discussion or analysis put forth in this recording constitutes an offer to buy or sell or a promotional recommendation of any security, financial instrument, or product or trading strategy. Further, none of the information is intended to constitute investment advice or recommendation to make or refrain from making any kind of investment decision and may not be relied on as such. The information provided here is as is, and the user of the information assumes the entire risk of any use it may make or permit to be made of the information. Thank you.